Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Summer almost over, NFL regular season just a few weeks away, college football almost ready to start, the golf majors over, U.S. Open tennis coming, we'll get into more of that later. It's a great time of year, and even better because Dan Calaruso is back from worldwide global management to participate in the show. How are you? Yeah, my worldwide global management took me on vacation to uh, Coronado Island and the North Fork of Long Island, so not exactly global, but well-spent time off. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, but that, you know, that was an invitation to claim the last two weeks were purely business for all of your economic reporting, and you fumbled it. I wish. I wish. Not, not, not so. Not so. Um, yeah, good. Well, here's the deal. Next year or the year after, when you're in Coronado yet again or Long Island <laughs> and you don't have a television, never fear, because streaming is taking over the world. CBS continues its push into streaming, 24-7 live streaming in news. They've tested that. Looks pretty good. All of the politics help make that real. And now, with their content, the PGA, NCAA Division I basketball tournament, NFL, and the like, they're going to stream. Other networks are following. We'll talk about that again. But streaming around the clock continues to evolve, and CBS is taking a lead. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's interesting. There are a couple of things that are interesting in this. I think CBS and, and any network that has paid so much for rights has to figure out a way to make that audience bigger and capture every potential derivative revenue uh, slice that they can. So I think that's the obvious, you know, impetus behind all this. The flip side is you look at ESPN. I thought I was I was not here that week and I, wa- I wish I could have come on and talked about it. But when ESPN increases stake in BAM Media and announced its streaming service, I was thinking that if ESPN didn't have a legacy TV channel, it would have grown up to be BAM Media. Right. And it grew out of Major League Baseball dot com. Right. That's that's the origins of that company. It is the modern-day sports network for, for real diehard sports fans. And that's, uh, that's worthwhile because you don't get you worry about the highlight shows. You don't worry about that, that as much. And where the real premium is in the live events, and you have that presence. So I think it's an interesting economic curve we're taking right now. And CBS, I know, is feeling the pressure like every other network about how much they have to pony up next time. You know, the NFL deal is up or next time the, uh, you know, uh, a major deal is up and they're going to want to they're going to want to leverage it and they're going to want to squeeze the most they can out of it. And the only way to do that is to put it everywhere and make sure it it permeates every pore of your potential audience. Fox Sports Go, NBC Sports Live. Mm. The idea is three steps, as you so eloquently point out. The first is to establish the rights and make sure the rights are not just for traditional TV, but for everything in the world. The second is to make sure that the the world that uh, watches can't live without streaming, the ultimate reality. And the third is you got to figure out how to monetize it. And I think we're between steps two and three, right? I think we're a lot further than that. I think we're at step three and looking to maximize it. I think the the products become indispensable. It's there. They understand 
what the price range is, and now they have to start to really extract it. So I, I think they're there, except for the, the full-on, full-blown, digital-only, big-ticket sponsorship deal, and I think that's not far away. Well, I'm here proudly to announce, with your blessing, a Rick Haro Keeping Score 24-7 streaming filibuster podcast, all me, all night, all day, all the time. Can we monetize that? Uh, I think we could monetize it by blocking people from it. <laughs> uh, I think that's the best way to We'll sell you a special blocker so you can't hear Rick all day and all night. Yeah, thanks Thanks for the uh, emotional encouragement. Really appreciate it. But I have other good news, by the way. As a South Floridian, the New York Yankees uh, are moving to South Florida. Well, well not really, but, but you, you know, we, we, we know that Derek Jeter's uh, – uh, handshake has been committed, formal approval by baseball, a billion two. He will control the group that includes Bruce Sherman, I guess it is. And part of the deal is how will they put together a deal that brings people back to the park, restores faith in the Marlins. And the Yankees South is interesting because Don Mattingly, as we know, is a manager. Derek Jeter is there. Uh, a, a lot of pinstripes moved down here. And I know you're a Met guy, but what do you think of all this? Well, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, look, I think it's Jeter brings a winning culture, DNA, whatever you want to call it with him. I don't know how successful any athlete has been transferring that ability from the field or from the dugout to the management suite, right? And that's what I was going to ask you. Who's the most successful former player who's an executive that, that you know of or that you remember? John Elway. But there have been a lot that have tried. Right. Right. I mean, Michael Jordan, what do you call him? He was an executive in Washington, flamed a little bit. Now he owns the Hornets. He's dabbling in this team. So the jury is still out here. But I will say that baseball needed to shake it up down in South Florida. The All-Star game was supposed to be an end of an era and there was a little uncertainty there. But I think the transition will be good for South Florida baseball. Let's segue to something else that's interesting because we all love football in the NFL. Uh, you know, Hard Knocks just started, Jameis Winston and the Buccaneers. When Hard Knocks starts, it means the NFL is there. First episode on HBO this year, 670,000, up 32% from last season. And the first preseason games, every preseason game but one had higher viewership than the year before. So it looks like football is back. What do you think? I think, look, I think football will never go far away, but whether it's the Ezekiel Elliott criminal case or, or suspension, whatever you want to call it, whether it's the Colin Kaepernick controversy that continues, continues rather painfully, especially through the political lens of the current moment. I don't think the NFL's out of the woods. I know you, you talked about it a couple of shows ago about they had a lab, they had an audience lab set up, and they want to see what would make people watch longer, watch more, and all that. But I, and I think there's some technological things they can do and, you know, adapt more to the fantasy audience and, and that, that kind of strategy. But I think their bigger issue is the, the characters around the game have to start to appear less repellent. They could really use a Tim Tebow right now. They could really use someone to make me happy to watch television with my son or daughter. And I was to watch the NFL with my son or my daughter. And right now, I don't know where I find that. I don't know if I find it in the, in the management suite. I don't know if I find it with ownership. I certainly don't find it at the concession stands. And I think that's the NFL's issue. And I think it's going to hang around. From your point of view, maybe these ratings are a turn. What do you think might be a surprise? What can, if, if what I'm saying is true, you tell me if it's total nonsense. But is there a surprise? Is there a, something that the NFL is going to be able to 
to surprise us with on the positive side of the ledger that doesn't involve a, uh, you know, a mugshot uh, <laughs> or uh, an illegal substance uh, or, a, you know, particularly gruesome on-field violence? Well, I think the surprise will be the consistency of on-field activity, ironically. The six-game suspension of Zeke Elliott, uh, quick um, you know, Jerry Jones is, is they, they probably will appeal. We'll figure that out. But the reason it was so quick is everybody wants to get this past them before the season starts. And so of our Horror Sports Ventures Power 100 this last year, 27 were NFL players, which is more than before, which means there are a lot of players who are the identity of the team on the field, but doesn't mean they're the right identity. Zeke Elliott was in the top 10 because he uses social media, but that doesn't always help. So the surprise will be that the NFL focuses on what they do best, which is make money, $6 billion television deal, $2.34 billion average franchise, up 19%, and labor peace is there, so we don't have the rhetoric with the players, even though they're going to try to work things out. And obviously the concussion CTE, stay one step ahead of the science, is probably the biggest elephant in the room. It dominates the whole room. So we'll be talking about that a lot later. But what I hope goes away for you know all of us, is Patriots domination, and I, I'm just kind of half kidding, but but they are the juggernaut. They'll continue to be the juggernaut, and one of the interesting things that we'll look at in our next interview is why. Jessica Gelman is the CEO of the Kraft Analytics Group. It's a technology company that's focused on data management, advanced analytics, and strategic marketing. 15-year um, evolution with the Kraft Sports Group, the Patriots, Gillette Stadium, the Revolution. But she's a McKinsey spinoff consultant. She's a Harvard Business School BA cum laude in psychology, believe it or not, from Harvard. And the point is she's the one in charge of maneuvering the data analytics as a profit center for the Kraft family, but also why the Patriots are a cut above everybody else, because as if they even need it with Belichick, their data is better than everybody else. Why? Let's hear it. Sports Professor Riccardo, the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference, and I do this even though the person who is the co-chair, founder, organizer is sitting to my right. Conference is getting bigger, better every year. The cacophony is now end of the day. Happy students, happy vendors, happy sellers, happy sponsors, all reveling in the fact that this conference is bigger and better every year. Jessica Gelman, CEO of Craft Analytics Group. How's that for intro? It was great. Yeah, it's been a phenomenal two days. It's hard to believe that we're at the end of it. Um, I think what I've heard is the energy this year has been better than ever before. And I think we added a, a number of new dimensions. The uh, drone exhibition racing. What's not to love? Yeah, right. The chess simul, where we had uh, Susan Polgar competing against uh, 10 people simultaneously. She's a grand chess master. Who we're interviewing. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Esports competition, right. full day, uh, accelerator program presented by Reebok, five finalists competing for $50,000. And then that was just the, the side stuff, right? And then we had the 39 panels. 39 competitive advantage talks, workshops. It was... Uh, Facts and figures on attendees? We had 3,500 attendees. We had our largest group of sports organizations, 30% more NFL teams, 75% more MLS teams, 100% more college athletic departments. 8% of the attendees were international. So that 
that also really speaks to the growth of analytics and the interest that we're seeing. So it's great. The other thing is we had a lot more s smaller sports that were presenting this year, mixed martial arts, right, volleyball. So that it's, it's, it's becoming ubiquitous. What year is this? This, this is our 11th, yeah. So if you finishing. look back 11 years ago and to think that a conference of uh, pr primarily high-tech, newfangled technology would be this prolific, hard to believe. It's very hard to believe. I mean, so Daryl and I were teaching a class at Sloan, and he got the job uh, to be the GM of the Houston Rockets. And we kind of conceived of this conference over drinks and put it together in four months with the, the students who had been in the class the year before. We had 125 people attending the first conference. We, we had a, close to 200 speakers this year. So it's, it's uh, people say, you know, is this what you envisioned it would become? And I would say, no way. It's far exceeded anything that we ever could have imagined. But when you have a lot of really smart, motivated students, and, you know, Daryl and I are, you know, progressing in our careers too. Right. Um, it's, been, it's been really fun to help drive the growth and see the reaction to it. A lot of thought leadership conferences are euphemisms for getting people together and having drinks. This is really the <laughs> definitive poster child for thought leadership. A lot of vendors, a lot of sponsors, a lot of students, and a lot of people want different things here. What's the kind of one common thread that brings everybody together? I mean, it's analytics. Yeah. And people, people actually said, said to me this year, you, you brought so many new dimensions to what the conference was offering, and do you think you should rename it? And the answer is no, because the underlying kind of subject is analytics. And even like when we're looking at eSports, for example, I met with ESPN very early in the year and we were just talking about what's new, where do we really need to focus on. And Daryl's been a longtime supporter uh, and promoter of eSports. We, we had our first one six years ago, first panel. And uh, you know the ESPN folks said this is an industry that's very early on in the analytics and they're doing the type of work that was happening in baseball with sabermetrics you know, 20, 25 years ago. So that's what's, that's what's really fun and interesting. And the other thing, in the early days, a lot of the panels were, is analytics going to ever catch on? Yeah. And it's just, I mean, that's not the discussion yeah. now. We're really getting into the nitty gritty of what we're talking about. And I think, you know, we, we spun out the Craft Analytics Group last May um, you know, on the business side, and we'd been doing a lot of work within the craft group over the past 15 years and give the, the crafts a lot of credit for investing early uh, while the team was very good and con has continued to be very good. And we were just, we were getting a lot of questions about how we were doing it. And so I think Robert and Jonathan's been speaking at the conference since the second year. Yeah. And Robert came last year and he came again this year. And you know, they're just great supporters and have had great business success. And I think, you know, f quite a statement that that you know this is this is a business that we're in now too. Okay. Is there a uh, an understanding that the Kraft Analytics Group has product that is effectively proprietary to service the Kraft uh, competitive advantage? 
Is it scalable to be able to market around the world? Is it somewhere in between? Where's that? Yeah, so what what we think of ourselves as is an organ we help organizations become data driven. So we do have a technology, it's a tech stack proprietary that we use to collect the data from disparate data sources, get a single view of our customers fold in predictive analytics, we have an in-house analytics team, and then have data visualization so you can see your data and make good business decisions. But then what really differentiates us is that, you know, we've been in the industry for 15 years and we can do just broad consulting about what is the right data that needs to be going into it, what is the structure and the staffing that you need to have, what do you need to do from a data governance perspective. Um, so I think that is is very, very unique and we've been getting, uh, you know, we, are, we already have um, five clients and we're seven months in and, uh, you know, we're having a lot of fun. It's been, it's been great um, and I'm really enjoying it. You watch the Patriots play and dominate everything they do, some early, some late, and everybody, whether they like them or not, respects the organization right. and respects uh, the, the way you do business, they do business. Uh, well, it really way, starts with the crafts, right? Well, it starts with the crafts, it's very clear. But in your own way, in your own mind, how, how much does the whole analytic data process help facilitate uh, the winning edge? I mean, it's critical on the business side. The, the focus is really understanding our customers and giving them a personalized experience and making changes to our business to improve their experience. So it's critical in that regard. And I mean, I'm I, I'm not involved on the team side, but you know, I would say there's likely some good consistency in terms of how things are approached under the auspices of the crafts. Go back to data for a couple of minutes in the future of it. Five years from now, does data, uh, the, the, there, there's the tension from Billy Bean day one Moneyball mm -hmm. and the dynamic uh, structure process between the heart and, and, the, and, the, and the computer and the mind. Um, have we reached a balance? Certainly everybody's using it. Does data dominate now? Do we need to swing back the other way? Five years from now, where do both pieces fit? I mean, listen, the brain is the you know, most analytical tool that we have. I think what, what analytics can do is it can help put some of that gut instinct, uh, give you the data to support it. So, you know, those scouts who have those gut instincts, there's often good credibility in them, but I think also looking at information in a different view from a different lens is really informative. So I don't, you know, it's never going to be just look at the data because then you're going to be missing some of the big pictures. A lot of what we talk about is how you need to be able to be able to have information from multiple sources to actually make true decisions. Yeah. So. You're obviously happy with the progress of this uh, conference. I'm thrilled. It's, it's, well, let me just tell yeah. you, the students are you know, just one of the best parts. Obviously, yeah. working with Daryl and the excuse to work with Daryl is wonderful, but um, you know, we've hired, uh, we with the Craft Group, Craft Analytics Group, we've hired a number of folks from MIT Sloan as well as people who've attended the conference going through the resume book. But the other thing that's amazing is how many of the former student leads are now in the sports industry. So there's a great, you know, this great legacy that I'm very proud of. An amazing conference. It only gets better. Thank, Thank you, Jessica. you. Really appreciate Thanks so much. it. Okay. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell, the producer of the show, Alex Cohen. 
Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.